0: Alexander Weinstein is the author of Universal Love and Children of the New World, a story from Children of the New World called Saying Goodbye to Yang is in the process of, or if not actually now, a major motion picture. Thank you for joining me, Alex.
1: Thanks so much for having me back.
0: So talk about having one of your short stories adapted. How did that come to pass? I mean, it seems like many of them really would lend themselves to adaptation.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a dream come true to have that happen. I, as a child, I wanted to be a film producer and a director. And uh, so this is like full circle to see my stories becoming films. And, you know, the way it worked is really I have a Hollywood agent. Um, who really loved the stories and loved the work, and he gets it out to different directors and writers uh, who would be interested in it. And then I've actually had four of the stories from Children of the New World are optioned. Saying Goodbye to Yang is, the, is one that's now done with, uh, went through production, is just premiered at Cannes, uh, which was incredible.
0: Wow, that's, that's amazing. You know, what, what strikes me about your stories and about all your work is that you have a genius, I, I would say, at connecting uh, the human aspects to the technological aspects. So much science fiction, and this is not a bad thing necessarily, it involves thinking up like a, a unique kind of uh, situation derived from real science. I'm thinking of, in the most classic term, uh, Isaac Asimov's story, Nightfall, about a civilization that has come to rise in a star cluster war so that it is never night except for once every three millennia, at which point all civilization comes to a crashing halt because nobody knows what night is.
1: Mm-hmm. And,
0: and it's a really powerful story. But your stories mine the human aspects so well. They're incredibly poignant. And I'm really glad that you decided to set them in using the, the genre of science fiction because I think it, it allows you to really ramp up the poignance. So talk about that decision to write science fiction in the first place because the the real content of your stories it it's feels like very much like mainstream fiction from the last set. That was written like five years in the future, and beam back into your brain.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what it feels like, too, especially as technology catches up with my stories. Like I keep writing about these what I think are mildly horrific uh, progressions of our technology, like you know implanted microchips and holograms that will replace, you know, lost loved ones with. And then it turns out that sure enough here's Elon Musk trying to work on implanting our brains and Whitney Houston's hologram is giving a tour and I'm just like in shock I'm like oh no I'm writing realism <laughs> you know the uh... <laughs> but it is it is um, really important to me the human aspect you know I wasn't a big sci-fi reader at all as even now, I'm just starting to get into hard sci-fi. It really kind of, I think, pushed me out because it was so premise based in in the, you know, in the, in the hardest sci-fi sometimes. There was so much explanation and I think forefronting of the, the information, right? The info dump in some ways is what it felt like that I'd get caught in that premise part and I'd keep looking for the humans and saying, OK, but what's the what's the moral compass here what's the in interiority of the characters and not to say that hard sci-fi doesn't do this just that where i was reading was people like Chekhov and somerset mon and james baldwin and eventually people like uh, tom robbins and and kurt vonnegut really blew my mind with humor um, and i could see that there it was all about character as you say literary fiction literary realist fiction tradition um in its best Portrays characters' lives and the things we struggle with, and that's what I wanted to capture.
0: You know what's interesting is that we really now, at this point in, in our lives, we have to admit that much of a we're surrounded by a world that really feels like a science fiction story. There's so much uh, technology that's been developed in our lifetime that we that many of us read about his children or saw in movies as being something in the future that is now part of our everyday lives. Yes. And I think that one of the things that you do really well is capture our emotional relationship with the technology because it's not just a knowledge that we're... That these things aren't just tools. After a while, they become objects of our affection. And, and I'm thinking... <laughs> I, this is really odd, but I have I, I cook a lot, and I have a lot of pans, you know, like yeah. dry pans and, and just you know tray baking trays, and and they're kind of covered with you know baked in stains. But I I have an emotional relationship with those things, and I think that you know I want my kids to be able to cook on the same pans that I cooked on because yes. there's some kind of emotional transmigration that you know all the joy that i experienced cooking and serving the food will somehow be transmitted to them through just the objects that's actually becoming possible with the kind of technology that's being embedded in those kind of objects (laughs) saying good well exactly
1: Uh, you know and i think part of the difference is that in our technology the frying pan is talking back to you now right the frying (laughs) pan is saying you know, oh, hey, Alexander, would you like to make some eggs today? I know you love eggs or whatever it is. And how are you <laughs> feeling? Would you like me to play your favorite tune? Oh, yeah, thank you. That's great. Um, and it's creating, I think, a false false intimacy, an AI intimacy that we are then communicating with. Like you say, we are in sci-fi right now. And the story uh, that's saying goodbye to Yang, that's the film after Yang, is all about that. It's about this robot child that is so realistic that it becomes kind of like a, a member of the family without people realizing it, without the family realizing it. And the the movie, and both the movie and the t- story, questions how deeply have we formed these relationships to our technology? My own personal answer to that is very deep. We are we are all the way in uh, at this point, and all the way into a technological relationship that we haven't fully understood the terms of yet. And yet we're adapting to match the specifications of the software or the hardware, right? So if we have to join a dating app that requires that we learn to swipe people into the trash, we accept that morality because we want to use it (laughs) without being like, hold on, I don't know if I actually like swiping people into the trash. Like we just do that and that becomes, and this is an example of where I think we're asked to cross a lot of emotional and moral um, lines that we may have set up that we never realized we were crossing, but the technology has asked us to sign that away.
0: You know, you speak to something that uh, I think we all think about, which is the relationship between technology and culture. Our technology is the 21st century, clearly, but our culture it's not even twentieth century. It's maybe nineteenth century, and, and the friction between those two is really interesting. As the twenty first century draws, creates for us the, a culture that we we are not really aware of all the implications of what we are doing. And I think the the story the saying goodbye to Yang is a beautiful example of that. And I think one thing you do really well is to infuse your stories with nostalgia, and love, Mm -hmm. and emotions. It's not just, there's a feeling of dread in there too sometimes, because all of this is a little bit, or extremely terrifying depending on, (laughs) I guess you're moving, you write the story. But So talk about that, Um, putting in the kind of emotions that us 19th century humans can understand in the 21st century
1: yeah i well and nostalgia is such a big emotion for me i would say it plays into so much of my writing which is interesting because i study buddhism and it's all about being in the now but i find that like it's only after something happened that i can look (laughs) back and be like oh i really missed that you know or like reflect on it um I think part of the humor in that story and part of the humor that I work with is a little tongue-in-cheek Norman Rockwellian critique, you know, like they're going apple picking at the start of my story and they're eating Cheerios and they're around the breakfast table and there is nostalgia for that, especially when you look at our lives where our kids are on their phones around the table and we're on our phones scrolling through Facebook and Instagram and making our orders with imperfect foods and, you know, updating our LinkedIn or whatever it is. And we tell them to put away their phones because, you know, stop watching YouTube. And we're losing that family around the table, for example. I think we have a long uh, need, a long-held nostalgia for, oh, before, for those of us who can remember, before cell phones, before we were on all the time, before email, there was a little more quiet that we had. There was – and – you know, while I'm saying this, there was also everything bad that came with that nostalgia, right? So you have um, these inherent problems in that story of racism, for example, um, which is still ongoing, right? I mean, this is still um, Norman Rockwellian critique is also a critique of that period and the ongoing period of injustices that's playing out throughout. So I think it's a very complicated nostalgia that I, I work with in all of my stories.
0: You talked about your sense of humor and the uh, influence of Vonnegut. And, and I think that that comes out in some of the stories in this book too, that some of the more straight up satires. there's one piece on, let me see here, uh, oh, contents, there we go, uh, that where you talk about um, a brief, is it A Brief History of the Failed Revolution? Yeah, I, I think that this is the one exactly. Yeah, this is the one where it, that struck me as a very Stanislaw kind of piece where, you know, it, it's kind of an, uh, you have some real playful fun with uh, academics and, and how academics look. But what you're talking about is really a, a, a very interesting and terrifying concept.
1: Yeah, right. So that story has the premise that there's been this, I don't know what it would be called, 6G or something that's been put into effect where you can no longer escape the internet, right? <laughs> it's just beamed into your head at all times. And of course, it's beamed in with this like, hey, this is great. You know, now you can access all your recipes, except for the people that glitch on the recipes and can only like have conversations about meatloaf, wherever they go or something like that. Um and so, you know, and and what I was looking at, it's written as a fake academic essay that really doesn't see the problem. The author of this piece, the <laughs> implied author of the piece, doesn't get what the problem was about selling our consciousness to corporations. You know, they're trying to be objective, but they're also making fun of just slightly this like spelunk architecture movement of people that were trying to hide underground and. Um, and it's horrifying. That's that humor, right? I mean, the, the subtext and the footnotes in that piece reveal a horrifying society, and yet so much of it is tongue-in-cheek and making fun of, um, I think in this case, academia, and, and the way that the academia will philosophize away some very serious problems.
0: Well, too, it's the way that humanity likes to kind of form a, a very nice outer crust. Uh, on, you know, we always like to think of the future as arriving and replacing the past and the present wholesale. The future comes and the entire past is gone and then it's just that bright and shiny future. But that's yep. not the way it works. The future is just layered on to the past one, one layer, one coat at a time like paint till finally the past is no longer even reachable exactly except in our memory. That's right. That's and- <laughs> right.
1: And the more, you know, and I'm seeing this more and more with the way news cycles work and especially through the uh, last presidency we were through where there was just so much um, complete fabrications of history and things being wiped out by the administration, right? Like whole, whole uh, fabrications of knowledge and truth replacing the actual on the ground situation. Uh, and then that being remembered as the history, right? Uh, because whoever speaks loud enough on the internet gets the attention, and that's really frightening to me because it means that we no longer have this palimpsest-like historical uh, where you can maybe like dig down and find the old texts, but in fact we're just constantly updating. You know what happened to all the old updates? Well, those we don't need that version anymore. Here's the new version. Forget about everything else. Um and then I think you know as I'm making that metaphor that's part of our technology as well that it's constantly updating so what does that mean for our own nostalgic histories our own photos that we don't even print out anymore that are lost you know forever hypothetically on our devices or you know maybe repeated on our facebook posts of here's what you were doing 5 years ago um, I think we're losing all of that. I think we are losing a human connection because of the technology in its worst form. Technology does amazing other things, but in its worst form, that's what's happening. And that's, like you say, that's what my stories try to reveal.
0: Well, two, what these stories really speak directly to the idea of rewriting history. Um, and I think that that's very important. And this uh, brings up the the one of my favorite old stories by Borges, "Talon uh, tertius Orbitus, where they find a uh, somebody on Earth an encyclopedia has a much more appealing history of the world than the actual history. Say, well, let's just get rid of that old <laughs> history and the, the that's one of book. my favorite
1: stories too i mean i love borges i love the labyrinths he uh, creates yeah, he's definitely sure. an influence uh, more and in, you know less so in the when i work in this vein but i write a lot of stories um that are fantastical and magical realist as well like i have a, a travel guide to a uh, continent that doesn't exist and in those stories uh borges is a huge influence on my work
0: mm. well i i think the Bores had a very interesting understanding of humanity that is somewhat, I think, obscured to a certain extent by his ability to work through the fantastical and to create the the fantastical things that seem absolutely real. But I think that this is something you share, is the idea of how malleable reality is by virtue of the fact of who is describing it to you. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and I, absolutely. I, I, your stories really speak to that. Well, um, you know, uh, the, the story Fall Line um, is is a really is such a wonderful story because that is a story that that is really that's six years in the future <laughs> or maybe. so. It's so really close. You know, as you re- write, the, how long ago did you write that story? And
1: yeah. So it's probably I wrote that story probably eight years ago or so, right? And the premise again here is that uh, well, there's been the big thaw. So global warming has happened and it's told from the perspective of a extreme skier who is kind of aging and can no longer do his extreme skiing, both because of an accident he had, but because there's no snow. Uh and yet he has these contact lenses that let him uh sort of reflect whatever he's seeing and narrate himself to the world in hopes of getting followers and you know kind of getting ads probably and money through his eye screens and i think periscope if if you remember that old old technology that sort of showed up and disappeared there was an app called periscope Mm -hmm. um where people were doing that they were just sort of narrating their lives and you could like it and i was so horrified when it first came out like oh my god I remember watching somebody folding their laundry and just talking about their life. And I was saying, this is the worst of reality TV and the worst of like hawking ourselves, pimping ourselves out to viewers for likes. Meanwhile, that's where we went. We went, that's where we are like, you know, YouTube, you know, how many followers can you get? Instagram, maybe I can turn my friends into potential sources of income. Uh, That was all under that story. you know, When we talk about it this way, I think part of what I'm trying to do is hide that critique. That's a very strong critique I'm talking about here. Mm-hmm. On a craft level, I always want to hide that in the characters themselves so that I'm not selling out the characters to make the critique, but it still informs their behavior. Uh,
0: that's one of the things I think that makes such a big difference to me in your stories is the what method by which you are able to um, put us – Firmly in the so firmly in the point of view of people who seem so much like us, but there's a layer or two of technology that makes them completely almost incomprehensible, and so uh, that's we have become that way. To you know our our parents or our grandparents, I've, one of my favorite things that I ever heard an author say was Michael Pollan, who was talking about that. Yo Gogert. Yes. He said, if I showed a tube of this to my grandmother, she'd say, "What is that? Is that food?" <laughs> and I think that you um one of the things that makes your stories so wonderful to read is you make them palatable by playing with that absurdity for just a, an undercurrent of humor while investing your characters have invested their full emotions in the technological background and which can be often quite problematic as in the title story here children of the new world is that one of the ones that has been optioned
1: it is yeah yeah that's that's <laughs> on its way too um yeah i mean there's so that story deals with essentially a virtual world that you can enter um through this kind of technology it, you know you're in almost a casket i suppose. And then you sort of beam into this other world where you can do all kinds of things. You can have houses, you can have, it's sort of like a lived in second life. And you can also have kids there, it turns out. And these parents have the kids that they have to protect from such things as malware and viruses, who they love. (laughs) you know, They love their kids uh, and they want the best for them, but they're in serious danger in that world. And on one level, it's a metaphor for us, right? It's a metaphor for us going online and disappearing into these virtual worlds that aren't always safe. Um, You know, losing your partner to World of Warcraft back in the day or losing your kids (laughs) to Fortnite is in fact (laughs) that world. Um, And on another level, the story is just pushing us forward to say, well, this seems the logical extension of where we would want to go, we'd want a second world to play around in um and that's really dangerous uh, to some degree it's fascinating and dangerous right I, I try to make the fascination in these stories really very attractive and beautiful uh because i think the technology is attractive and beautiful to us we are seduced by it
0: well it's always a two-edged sword uh, my when my sons were growing up was early in the video game revolution, so we had all the various kinds of consoles from the primitives, you know, Sega ones, up yeah. to, you know, the third generation ones. And, and to a certain degree, I mean, our thought was, you know, this generation of boys is, is has been lost to these video games. They've just been lost. And I was, you know, worried about how this was going to play out in my son's life because my one of my sons younger son was he was great at these video games and, and here he is now he's an adult he's completely grown up and he he tells me he says dad you know the reason i was able to get this incredibly good job working at a high tech firm with a zillion of you know investors is because i was able to learn how to use these high tech tools Because they were all pretty much like the video games I used to play.
1: That's right. Well, you know, and as you're talking, it it occurred to me that really we're all playing video games now. We're playing role-playing games known as Facebook and Instagram. And so we create our avatars, (laughs) you know, we create our little avatars instead of Zelda or whoever. And then we send them out there and we show them doing like hopping on the beach and having a martini and, you know, (laughs) we get the sparkly lights just right. And sure enough, really what we're doing is just playing, in some ways, a very boring video game with our own personalities.
0: (laughs) You know, uh, for me too, uh, the way we interact um, has has been so changed. And you write a wonderful story. You uh, said earlier that you are really interested in, in Buddhism. And that yeah. comes out in, in the pyramid and the word I can't say on reading.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. The alternative to the donkey, right.
0: Yes. And, and, and I think that that story... You really uh, bring out your sense of humor in that story and have a lot of fun while at the same time, it's extremely chilling. So talk about coming up with a premise for that story, which is uh, puts the Dalai Lama in an unusual light.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. So in that story, the premise is that reincarnation is real and has been co-opted by the U.S. government and corporations so that uh, in a really sort of hedonistic, materialistic fashion, as the U.S. tends to like to do. Uh, and so you can now reincarnate yourself uh, while you're still alive into a kind of a cloned body. So you can stay 30 forever with your same consciousness, if that's what you want. Um, and so you have people like, you know, Brad Pitt's, you know, version seven or Angelina Jolie version eight. Or, you know, in that story, the horror was George W. Bush would be president forever. Little did I know how quaint that was (laughs) when I was writing it, Um, you know. So, right. So that's going on. And there are terrorists called terrorists by the U.S. government, which are the Buddhists under the Dalai Lama who are trying to stop this reincarnation process from happening because it's co-opting the way that natural reincarnation should work. And how did I come up with it? You know, I actually had a dream. That was one of some stories come from dreams. And I had a dream that I was uh, with this woman and we were trying to save uh, the pyramid that shows up in there. We were building a pyramid in 21st century America and we looked out over the landscape and there were the arches of the McDonald's and the copters were coming in. And she was telling me we didn't make it this time. You know, we didn't we didn't do it. And I woke up and I said, wow, that's some dream. Like, what did that mean? We didn't make it this time. And from there, I was able to extrapolate, oh, well, maybe the next lifetime through, you know, like we've been fighting in this dream, like superheroes, right? Fighting some kind of US totalitarian government uh, in forms throughout history. And I love that premise, you know, I love that idea. Then I just had to figure out how does it work on the page? Um, And I was shocked when I found out that the Dalai Lama would be the number one terrorist to the U.S., but it made total sense for the story. Uh,
0: Now, um, you have another academic uh, exercise in here, excerpts from the New World Authorized Dictionary. Uh, This is a lot of fun, so talk about um, your... Love of academia because I think it's clear you do you do really like the academic world, uh, as yes. in, uh, from the I I'm going to say from the 20th century, not necessarily the 21st. Yeah,
1: well, so I I you know I'm a professor and I teach and I love teaching students and working uh, at university and um and I think education is incredible, right? I think it's really a just a beautiful lineage and the dryness of it i mean i was a, you talk about cooking i was a cook too when i was for 10 years i worked as a chef and uh, while i was trying to publish my stories and get my uh, my ba and things like that and i remember you know in the in the chef world people curse and they cut and they have fire you know around them and they it's like a pirate crew And then you get to academia and everything's so dry. And, you know, if you don't like what somebody's saying, you say, well, I would like to raise my hand about disagreeing about the proposal that, you know, instead of being like, get this effing shrimp on the table, which is really what you want to say to your colleagues sometimes in academia. And that's a really funny, you know, setup for me that everything is so dry. And that's this story takes the form of a very dry uh, encyclopedia entries or definitions of words, really, right? Uh, And this actually came out of my studies in MFA. I took a class when I was studying in the MFA program on dictionaries. And I looked at, there's something called Among the New Words that the dictionary, I forget who puts it out, every year you find out what are the new words. And at that point, it was all about the gulf war and there was all these war terms and i said my god what a document this is to see what were the new words of a year and that led to that story then you know and so there is a lot of war terms in there there's a lot of technology terms um and it was a wonderful form because you can do these they're really micro fictions each piece is its own little contained world Uh and snapshot of what the future will be like
0: one of the things i think you do really well is to put a nice to, to write stories that have a, a great inventive uh, a premise but also you make sure that, that there's a full story in there and I can, you know, I, wanna, I think that uh, for movies novels are often way too much and I, one of the reasons I think that you, I can see why your stories have been adapted is because in that story there's enough there of the all the humanity is there And what the filmmaker can do is blow out and grow that world so that the film contains all the ideas and all the interest of the story, but also the filmmaker has some art room to exercise their own art. I'm wondering if this affects the way you write.
1: Say more about that, if what affects the way I write.
0: If the way that... um, you leave open spaces do you leave open spaces because think you think on one hand you could take i think any of these short stories and blow them out into a novel i mean there's yeah. not obviously enough humanity there to do that but yeah. but you don't so I, i'm you kind of like compact things i think nicely yeah
1: yeah yeah I, you know i love that about the short story form is its conciseness and that you can do so much by inference you know, I mean, one of the secrets for me is that you don't have to answer all the questions. Um, and, you know, you just have to answer a couple of the important ones. And you just have to give enough that the, that you give, you know, you have to figure out what is the central conflict. Now we're going back to traditional craft. Um, but what is the central conflict of the character or of the situation? And then does that have a kind of completion? Uh, you know, does that have an arc? Outside of that, the technology, the side characters, are really, you know, hopefully well-developed brushstrokes that help to reflect back on the story itself, but that don't need to be expanded on. And I love that. I love not having to do that. That's, a, in some ways, that's a lot of work and it's a pain. And I don't want to follow every character down. You know, I don't want to write Anna Karenina. Um, I just am happy to get the premise out there and then have the characters and get at the emotional core of what's of what's going on. Um, you know, picking up on something that you were saying at the start of that question, that emotional core, that humanity piece is essential so that the story is not just a premise. Um, I've had a lot of failed stories where it turns out that all I really had was a cool premise. And that to me, a rule for me is that a plot, the premise is not a plot, right? And that in order for the premise to work, it actually almost has to be backgrounded, and the characters should then become foregrounded. And I'll give an example. In the in the in the collection, um, there's the story "Openness," where you have this technology that allows you to kind of have almost an aura. Everybody's is con- communicating telepathically through this technology and you can post pictures on your aura so that you and I would never if we met on a train we wouldn't even have to talk we just have to open our layers to one another
0: i and love the layers yes. <laughs> right and
1: so i can and i can choose my layers right like i can let you see some pictures but like then deeper in is my love of music and you know depends how deep we get i can give you access and that premise I had right away. And I thought, wow, this is awesome. I love this premise. I could not write the story because all it was was a premise. And all I would have is kind of empty characters using this technology. And then I went through a breakup. And I suddenly, you know, it was a really hard breakup. And I saw how layers came up, how everything shuts down. You let people, like, you shut them out of your life, right? And I was being shut out of, of someone's life. And I said, oh, there's the layers. That's the story. It's a love story. Got it. Now I can write the story and the technology is secondary to the heartbreak and the the love story that I want to
0: write. Wow, that's so interesting. You know, um, you, you write well, too, about the addictive nature uh, uh, of this technology. And I think uh, uh, the story that you have about uh, uh, using the... Uh, who was it? It was a dumb uh, the uh, brain. It was an old. This is now I'm displaying my age. It's a very old movie uh, that had incredible special effects by Douglas Trumbull, uh, and, and where you could where they were able to record memories and then you could playback memories. Um, you would do a fantastic job with that, and and so talk about um the addictive nature of tech of technology that accesses your mind i mean once you start playing with your mind you're the first thing you're going to get is an addictive response
1: absolutely you know and i think what's so fascinating to me is that this is the cats out of the bag like the founders of the technology we use have admitted that they programmed Consciously, they did this intentionally. Addiction into the very apps that we use, As so much so that they, you know, the founders of, of of these kind of programs won't let their own kids use these apps. They keep them from it because they know that it works with the dopamine receptors and all of this uh, reactions that we have in order to want to see the next hit. You know, like well, maybe if I keep scrolling, the scrolling is like a. Um, What's it called? Like a slot machine. Well, this was sort of boring, but maybe if I keep scrolling, I'll get to something. Oh, there's something nice. A little cat photo. I like that. And then you keep scrolling, you know, Um, that's addiction. And I certainly have succumbed to it. I check. I used to ask students 10 years ago, maybe five years ago, seven. How many of you check your phones 10 times a day? Well, that's a ridiculous question now. The question now is how many of you check your phones a hundred times a day would be a low estimate or a couple hundred times a day. And I do that. I mean, I have trouble, if I wanna read a book, I need to keep the phone out of reach because I, as an author, I have trouble making it through a couple pages without wanting to check. Did anybody send me a message? Is there an update? Is there an email I should answer? That's horrifying. That means my brain has been rewired. Now, what I then do in my stories is just make that external rather than internal, right? So I make the addiction to the technology itself. Um, I'm thinking about that story in their moksha where they're hooked on enlightenment. You know, like you can get electronic <laughs> enlightenment, and uh, and there's the Dalai Lama again. I guess there's a couple of appearances of the Dalai Lama as the uh, you know arch enemy of the U.S. Um, but yeah that addiction to the next hit that of what we can find online i think is super dangerous i think we're in it and the question is how will we become unaddicted again how do we detox
0: um I, i'm thinking there is no detox i just go keeps getting worse and worse to the point where there's the idea of detox itself has has been eliminated i mean in the same way that, you know, we used to be uh, addicted to mail, the postal mail. People, you would go to the mailbox every day and just wait for those letters because there's going to be important things in there. Bills or communications from people you haven't seen in a while. But now the idea of being addicted to post, regular old snail mail, is, is it's, does, it doesn't seem impossible right
1: though i think that in some ways in that analogy the problem would be if we were going out to the mailbox a hundred times a day after getting the mail you know at that point you would be as a neighbor you'd be like hey are you okay is everything all right you know you would take that person aside and help them and here we're just like the person you know across from us is eating food and checking their phones and oh, I got to take this call and we don't say like hey do you need any help are you okay like instead they seem like the movers and shakers of the society Um, and, you know, so, I mean, I reinstalled a landline and this is like, you know, my lifeline maybe slowly of, you know, can I start putting the phone away, not carrying it with me? Um, can I go bicycle riding without the phone so that I have an hour? Can I go swimming? Can I, and I think we all do this. Like if you go to a reading, let's say now we're opening up again, we went through a year where technology was in fact, very important for us to connect in such an essential, uh, beautiful way in many ways. Um, but now we have to recapture, I think, uh, or else we we risk losing the, the communal spaces of the book reading, of the concert, of um, even the office space, you know, if that can be a beautiful place, and I, I think it can. Um, how do you recreate these spaces where we see one another and spend time that's offline uh, in a way that's really nourishing to us? Because certainly the most important moments of my life have to do with interpersonal contact. And um, it's not laying in bed looking at my cell phone, that's for sure. It's (laughs) laying in bed looking at the love of my life and talking, you know, it is... Uh, the moment that my son reached up and you know took my hand and we headed across the street together to do something, right? Um, not all of this technological stuff that I think becomes very replaceable really quickly.
0: There's a, a beautifully poignant uh, uh, piece, like piece in the book where uh, the father and son are like actually like leave the house. <laughs> and, and I thought that on one hand, yes, it's funny in, in a way and, and and absurd, but it's not absurd. And what makes it uh, such a great story is that sense of poignancy and beauty and the importance of connection without buffers. We're all used to buffers. I mean, I'm seeing you in a very buffered manner. So, talk talk about the you know the importance of buffers.
1: Yeah. So that you know that story migration. It's really funny. Uh, the story is called migration, and it has the premise that nobody goes outside anymore because everybody's living in their bodysuits online and having a family, you know, they eat together, they get out of their bodysuits, but they're afraid of going out into the world. My friend said that was the most prophetic of all the stories you wrote. Like that's what we just lived through for a year, you know, where you're like, Oh my God, the children are outside the house. Like we got to get them. Uh, that was me and my family during the pandemic. You know, it really was like, how do we stay safe kind of thing. Um, and so Yeah, that story, the connection happens when they finally leave the house. Like you're saying, the father and son go. And it turns out that the son just wants to play, play, you know, throw a tennis ball against a wall just to see how it bounces. Like he just wants to know what's real life like. Um, And, you know, you're asking about the buffers in that because the buffers, of course, are those virtual persona that we create. Um, And it's an interesting, you know, sort of, enigma here of how do we use our online personas to create personalities that we claim are revealing us, right? We say this is the true self and certainly that can happen. You can have personas and you can reveal yourselves in ways that you never would to people in real life. And yet on another level, it seems that our online personas become the buffers of true emotion um, or of our own internal lives that we still shield a lot even if we're like unloading on the internet right uh which few people do in the is in as messy of a way as i think we really should you know like uh often we're presenting the best sides of ourselves i think the sides that are the most photogenic um
0: and well, so know, maybe that's the
1: buffer too you know we don't we're buffer buffering ourselves from true intimacy
0: you know it strikes me that even before the internet, we would create buffers between one another. there'd be you know the workplace you Absolutely, the, yeah. the bar person you the at home you, the hanging out with your friends you and those are all separate kind of you know masks that we wear and what we're yes. finding now is that one of the things you do is show that technology, has given us the ability to make those masks actually real. Uh, Yes. uh, uh, To to give a reality to what has thus forth been kind of like a mindset that we would have some, And what happens when those inbuilt, built-in mindsets get, you know, a a layer of technology that represents them. Then the technology in your stories reveals about uh, reveals our humanity and the limits of our humanity as well as demarcating and creating the limits. Those limits, it's a two-way yes. street on that. That's sort. right,
1: that's right. And and I think that, you know, as you're pointing out, here we go with like sort of the 1950s uh, persona again where there was such a hard delineation between who you were in different aspects. Um, and you look at the, sort of the incredible limitations of gender um and the rigid very rigid socioeconomics, which still continue today they're just slightly more um i think hidden by this idea that all of that has sort of dissolved like now you can find me here you can find me here don't look at my fet life profile please at work (laughs) you know like there's like but there's you know you still have your little corners of the internet i suppose where people are have this secret identity Um, or you have like this is my You can create how many friends you allow in to see what, right? You can have those kind of settings. But like you're saying, I think the technology has created a false idea of openness and access to one another. While we can see each other's lives, while I know my friends are having smoothies right now or whatever it is they're doing with their kids, if I don't call them and talk to them, I don't really know what's happening, you know, on a deeper level, what they're thinking about, what they're going through. Um, I think, in their in their love lives, in their personal lives, in their philosophical lives, in their spiritual lives. Uh, those become slightly more hidden from us if we don't reach out and connect. And that's, I think, what's at the heart of so many of the stories is that the conflict for the characters are will they break through this? Will they break through the technological walls they've created in order to have a human connection with one another? Well,
0: two, it strikes me that Um, the fact that they're stories, that we have to read the words. We have to read the words, take them in, and then go through that whole process of what reading is, which is, I think, very mysterious. It's something we all, if you know how to read... It's something you do naturally, and and you do it in the same way that you assemble the world when you look around and say, oh, that's the TV set over there, that's the door over there, and I understand that they're different things. It's the same, you do the same kind of thing when you're reading. You can accomplish something with this ancient, ancient technology, words on paper, that Mm -hmm. is still out of reach of all the technology that you write about, <laughs> <And> I, <laughs> until the until the AI can
1: read all the things and then produce an Alexander Weinstein story that will be obsolete.
0: <laughs> no, but I think uh, I, even then, the process of reading the story is something that I cannot be duplicated because it's a it's a collaboration between two people who will never meet in a, in a sense in that sense except in the way that we meet. The way your readers meet you on the page is a very unique thing. And the way that readers collaborate with you when they read the story and make the little movie in their head of of Yang. And this is something that I think gets to the best fiction can create memories that are the equivalent in a sense of real memories. And that's, I think, what you're what you get to in a, in a couple of your stories where you talk about memory and planting, that the difference between a good story that you read and you remember the story reading is, and the difference between that and your memory, say, of going to the park, it can become, uh, you know, trivial in a sense. My My memories of the best stories that I've read, the ones that just live in my mind and in my heart, are equivalent to many ways to the memories I have of the things I did and in fact they inform that we are informed by our reading about our own lives
1: yeah I mean that's what you know it for me it is a magical form in that way I was uh, I studied at Naropa at the at a Buddhist school called the Jack Kerouac school of disembodied poetics in uh, Boulder Colorado and one of the things during that time that I was so interested in was, could you create magic spells with language? Um, if there was such a thing as magic spells, could you do that on the page so that as the reader read the words, they would actually have altered consciousness experiences because of the incantation quality of the, of the language? Um, and that was a really interesting thought. I could never break through to figure out. But then later I realized, you know what, that's exactly what we do when we read something and we begin to cry or we read something and we feel joy. In fact, our consciousness is being changed by the very plot structure and the very characters and all of that. That is what literature is. That's what the art form is, or can be, certainly. You know, stories do a lot of different things, including entertainment. Um, And so that piece of how language affects us and how we remember things is really, it, it plays out, I think, in the stories as well. I'm thinking about the story cartographers where they mm-hmm. implant memories. And, you know, you can have that experience of having gone parachuting or skydiving without ever having to do it. You just have the memory, and that's good enough uh, for you. Um, memory is a really big theme, it turns out. And I'm not entirely sure why. It's probably connected to the nostalgia piece of how we remember things. Um, affecting the way that we reconstruct ourselves emotionally.
0: Well, I have to confess that in the stories where it's warranted, and and that's in many of them, I've come close to, as close as I'm going to come at this age to to crying, because, I mean, and it's not just because the stories are sad or something sad happens, it's because something real happens happens that is emotionally real and i think that's what your stories get at no matter how much technology we have and no matter how much our technology can make our thoughts come to life in a variety of fashions our emotions are there and our emotions are and always will be as real to us as the thing the stupid computer i'm tapping on right now (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, yeah, and these are the gateways to if you believe in the soul or to if you believe in at least a deeper sense of consciousness, um, the gateways into that, right? It is these moments when we suddenly see our life in a different light or because of something we read or because of a movie we see or because of an art piece or because of music we listen to that suddenly stirs something and it shifts and then you see your life in a different way or you see a person that you love in a different way. Um, That's incredible how that can happen. I think it's super mysterious and beautiful. Um, And part of what I want the stories to do is exactly that for the reader, but I also want it to be for me as I'm writing. And so I often give up a lot of control around the plot. I, I have a sense of where I want it to go, but then I let the characters in the story Kind of ruin what my expectations for that story are going to be, so that I can be surprised. I know the story is working when suddenly I'm caught off guard, and I say, "Oh no, wait a minute, that can't happen. That's not allowed to happen." And we, but then I also know at the simultaneously, like, of course, of course that needs to happen. I won't say what it is because it'll ruin the ending of most stories. But it's almost always the ending that surprises me because I've let the characters go. Um, and and I'll add this that. The theme that I thought I was trying to say, the moral I was trying to say, when that happens, it it completely throws over the moral of what I thought I wanted to say, and it creates something much deeper, ideally than I even thought I knew. Like I I have an experience of being in awe at that moment.
0: The new movie. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean. Yeah. Alexander Weinstein is the author of Children of the New World and Universal Love, a movie based on his story, Saying Goodbye to Yang, just premiered at Cannes. Thank you for joining me, Alex.
1: Thanks so much. It's wonderful to speak with you.